Hello, everyone. This is Annie, and you're listening to Heroes and Zeros, a true crime podcast. Hello, I hope you all had an awesome Halloween and are enjoying the fall weather, no matter where you're hanging your hat for the time being. (laughs) Today's episode is episode 76, and they are stories for our Afterlife series. I thought we should do some on the heels of our disgusting serial killer crime stories that we've had, our ghost stories, etc. And these stories I found in Quora, as told by the individuals themselves. And a question was put out there for readers, and the question was, quote, Do you believe that near-death experiences, or NDEs, are real? End quote. And Terry Rose responded, and this is her story. The title is, The Effects of Terry Rose's NDE. All I can say is that I believe mine was. It was much different than a dream, an idea, or a vision-type experience. It was real enough to me that it changed my life. I also claimed to be an atheist at the time, yet I woke up in the hospital feeling different about that. I woke up believing in a loving God. I believe that he is much different than the one I was taught to be afraid of. That one I was taught would send me to hell to burn for eternity if I crossed the line on certain things. What I encountered was not at all like what I was told it would be. I set very high standards for myself, and I don't believe I would have if it weren't for my NDE. I don't judge and condemn others. Instead, I do my best to love others, no matter how much they have hurt me. I forgive, no matter what. That doesn't mean I allow myself to be a doormat or that others aren't accountable for what they do. It just means that I don't give away my power by getting sucked into negativity or trying to control things that aren't within my control. I control myself. I try to bring people up instead of beating them down. I don't let negative feelings act as poison. I act the way I do because every day, day after day, decade after decade, I think about that place, the love, the light, the life review. Would I do those things if I didn't believe that my NDE was real, that it was all in my mind? I don't think so. Something happened that caused that change. Some people argue that NDEs aren't real, and if that is true, I wish they could explain to me why I feel so driven to be the best I can be, develop, and use the gifts I know we all have as co-creators, and to be loving and forgiving. Making those changes hasn't been a lot of fun. Sometimes it is really hard, and it takes discipline, but I do it because I remember what it felt like to relive my life in my review. I have never forgotten that. It is a driving force. I know I will experience that again. I am determined that the next one will be much better. I do believe that we are accountable and that we take part in creating the circumstances of our lives. I was shown that God isn't a mean disciplinarian God waiting to judge me. God is love and that is all he is capable of. We are the ones who mess up our lives by not using the gifts that we have to make life better. We live in a time of incredible discoveries that show beyond a shadow of a doubt that our energy is powerful. Technology can measure changes that take place because of the emotions we feel and project to others. That is what I was shown. 
I don't ever want to be responsible for creating negativity or to be the bad apple that spoils the bunch. I didn't like that feeling of being stuffed back in a body again. It felt very confining after being so free and tapped into an understanding that I don't have here. But I am glad I was given a chance to come back. I think it is very possible that we are here to learn how to love one another and maybe even that this is where hell is. There doesn't seem to be a lot of pure love out here, at least not at this time in history. There is a lot of corruption and cruelty, but unlike what I used to believe, God isn't the one creating it or the one that is going to wave it away. That is our job. It could happen if more people would just focus on being loving and kind to themselves and one another. That is not what the pre-NDE Terry Rose would have ever said or thought. So I ask myself and you, what happened that made me wake up the So I ask myself and you, what happened that made me wake up that way in the hospital after my car wreck? That's a good question, Terry Rose. And you know what, when she said that she wants to, you know, love others, but the first thing she said was to love herself, I need to learn to do that too because I sometimes am my worst critic and I mean I am so far from perfect. You have no idea. <laughs> All right. Number two is by M. Ray May. These stories are told from the writings of the actual individuals. So some of them, I don't know if English is their first language. So if it sounds funny, it's not because, you know, I have bad grammar or whatever. It's just that this person speaks this way. So number two, M. Ray May. About seven years ago, I was a first-year law student with a love for fast cars. I was also very inquisitive and I enjoyed challenging my parents on almost everything they said. I never meant any disrespect. I just always preferred my whys and my hows answered. One night I went out with friends and I lied to my then boyfriend about it and I told them that I was going to be home studying. My parents were unaware about the lie, but they knew that I was going out and they knew about my whereabouts. Before leaving the house, my mother asked me to drop something off at her friend's house. Since I wasn't driving, my male friend agreed to do it. After dropping it off, I realized I actually just wanted to go back home. And on the way home, after my friends reluctantly decided to drop me off, we had an accident. I was seated at the back and I shot through the windshield. I landed on my head where blood was gushing from it. I had a concussion, a crack in my skull, and severe injury to my frontal lobe. The damage was so severe that the emergency staff on duty, as chance would have it, knew my father they phoned my parents to drive with us to the ICU. At the time, I had a 10% chance of living, and I recall lying on my head. I didn't feel any pain, and I got up, and I went to go sit next to my friend who looked so frightened, but then acted like I wasn't even there. When my parents got to the scene, she started crying. The driver and other friends were both unconscious. Then I saw my father's face, and it was like anything that I'd ever seen. Up until that day, I'd never seen him cry. He looked bleak, and his eyes were red like he was forcing the tears back. And he looked furious? He looked furious. I wanted to run to him, but he was running in the opposite direction. And then I noticed he was running to the lifeless me, lying in the road. So I walked closer, watching him get on his knees and cradling my body in his arms. 
The medics and my mother were frantically shouting at him to leave me since they weren't sure of my bodily injuries at the time. He refused. I stood there and I heard him have a conversation with someone that I couldn't see. And it went like this. Daddy, why are you doing this? This voice says. This was the agreement. No, it wasn't. The agreement was that I would watch them grow up but never live to experience this. That's selfish. No, it's not. We agreed I'll come back when the time is right. But you're selfish, so she can have peace now, and you when the time is right. Then just take me now. She has so much to live for still. Selflessness. Agreed. I remember trying to follow the voice, trying to run after it to give me the peace that I could feel in the voice. But I stumbled and I fell in a hole. And when I woke up, I was lying on a bed. I felt naked and some guy was staring at me. So I shouted as hard as I could, Daddy, I'm naked and there's a man in here. Both of my parents rushed in. My mother was laughingly crying and my father looked as solid as always. And he told me that I was in the hospital and that I was in a car accident. He also told me that they hoped my love for driving with boys in fast cars ended here. I so badly wanted to ask him about the voice, but they injected me with something. And then I slept until the next day. The next day came with the grace of God. Was God the voice? My father didn't speak much, but my mother told me the experience was very traumatic for him since he never cried in front of people, let alone strangers before. I have to say, interject right here, I hate crying in front of people, and I don't know why. Always have. But anyway, that's just me, <laughs> big fat weirdo. On to the story. I protested that he didn't cry, and she told me how he sobbed for almost half an hour while the paramedics tried to take me from him to put me in the ambulance. It seems that I was the only person who heard the conversation. Every other conscious person at the scene only heard my father's sobs. That same day, the doctors also informed me and my parents that the damage to my brain was of such a nature that they would advise against me pursuing my studies. They told them to expect a change in my personality. Basically, they said, I'll be a little cuckoo. As we know from so many of our serial killer stories that the frontal lobe is what's often damaged that creates someone to be the mean way that they are. They also made me doubt the experience and I ended up delaying asking my father about it. But the experience changed me. I started doubting my father less. He told me if I wanted to pursue my studies, I should ask for an appeal at the university. We appealed, and I graduated with my BA Law degree, which took me six years, even though it was a three-year course. But I still completed it. Fast forward to my last year of studies, my mother phones me with the devastating news that my father, who was a very healthy 50-year-old, had a heart attack. She explained that she will pick me up after class to go see him. I go to the hospital on my own since visiting hours were still four hours away and I felt an urgency to see him. I ask about his whereabouts and they show me where he is but inform me that I can't go in. I push the doors open in anyway. He is sleeping and the cardiac monitor has only slight movements and it doesn't look the way I want it to look. So I run in and the nurse comes running after me shouting about how I will get us both into trouble and how she told me to just wait outside. I don't hear her, though, because I'm searching for the voice. I'm trying to tell him that he should have taken me. 
My mother and two younger sisters can't bear to lose my father. He answers, but I wasn't sure whether it was an external voice or if it was coming from inside of me, but it said, quote, he taught you how to be selfless. And then it went quiet. The nurse's voice suddenly became louder, shouting, see what you did. I looked at her, pointing at the cardiac monitor. It had sudden frantic movements, which she assumed was from the commotion. I smiled and I told her, yes, I'll be waiting in the waiting room because he'll be awake during visiting hours. NDEs aren't experiences like any other. You never know whether they are real or not, but they do affect you. I've learned to live every day as if it's my last and to treat every person as if I won't see them again. I'm a hugger and an optimist, and I draw a silver line for every cloud. Yes, I still have both my parents, but I've learned that even after they're gone, I'll still have them. I love that story. And I think the last two stories are less about what they saw when they died, as it is more about how it changed them. And the first one, I think, was an atheist. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, my throat is hurting. My husband's been sick. So hopefully you all won't be able to tell. <laughs> okay, the next question that was put out by Cora was, what is it like to die? And our third story is written by Amy Lachelle. And she says, I was shot in the head November 28, 2015. My jugular vein was almost completely severed. And due to the bullet bouncing around in my body, it broke my neck and fragmented off in two directions. A small piece embedded in my spine and the bigger chunk went to my rib cage, and it broke a couple of them only to lay on top of the third one down. I was shot in front of the door because I was on my way out. I laid in a pool of my own blood, silently talking to God because the intruder was still in the house. I felt lightheaded with my eyes partially open, daring not to blink. Scott, who was my best friend, was lying on the floor of the kitchen, just on the other side of the island, dead. He was the true target of the whole thing. I remember laying there in a puddle of my own blood thinking, dang, I thought when you was about to die you'd get cold. Why ain't I cold? That sweet copper tasting substance squirting from my body was keeping me warm. It's funny what you think about facing your own mortality. Then the bastard came around to where I was to rob me. He flipped me over a few times, going through my pockets, lifting my shirt and checking my bra. He stole the little $35 I had originally. When he realized I had nothing more, he attempted to flee out the front door. Mind you, the front door was what I was dropped in front of when I was shot. So I'm lying there, playing dead with my eyes half open, daring not to blink. He took the handle to the front door, opening it, and then proceeded to beat me in the back with it, over and over again. And I don't know exactly how many times he hit me, because I was too busy concentrating on not making any kind of noise whatsoever. He finally got done with his sadistic little game, and then he fled. He was a couple seconds out the door, and I mustered everything I had, and I stood up. The first thing I thought was, phone! I could feel my life squirting out of my body with every heartbeat. My jugular was the most devastating injury that had happened to me that day. I grabbed my phone and proceeded to dial 911 and everyone else that had moved across my dying brain. 
My heartbeat was going ninety to nothing, and so was the blood exiting my body. I remember hearing and seeing everything so clearly. All I could think of was my child and how no one will ever know what truly happened. Who actually did it and why? Damn, this is it! All these thoughts are swirling around in my head as I call people and attempt to move across the living room to check on Scott. It did not occur to me that in that moment, as the life was leaving my body, that he might come back. I had to check on Scott. I made it to him to discover that he had passed. Scott, how could you do this to me? I thought to myself. And I'm going to die alone. Then the devastation set in. I don't know where I am. My attempt to do a one-armed CPR in Scott failed, and his wallet was missing, so I can't tell 911 the address to the house. Yep, I'm going to die. I'm going to die all by myself. Ain't this some shit? When all hope left my body and I was beginning to cry, a stranger, at least a stranger to me, busted through the door, screaming at Scott that he needed to talk to him. I hollered, hey, please help, we've been shot. This man didn't say a word. He turned around and ran away. He ran away, can you believe that? Little did I know, he was running to the end of the road to catch the ambulance I heard going by. I've been listening to the ambulance for at least 15 minutes, driving up and down the road, not being able to find the address. So when they loaded me up, I kept holding on, thinking, all I got to do is make it to the hospital. That's all I got to do. They rushed me to another county for the better hospital. Only when we finally got there is when I gave up. Thinking that I'm at the hospital, there's nothing more I can do. I don't have to hold on anymore. I can give up. I heard the doctors talking over me, saying that they couldn't believe my jugular vein had went back in on its own, but they didn't think that I was going to survive. This completely brought me out of the situation and I screamed, the hell I ain't. Eventually, they rode me out of ICU and I began the long process of recovery. All the doctors said I was a literal miracle. Doctors, doctors telling me I was a miracle. Through the broken neck and everything I endured on top of it, I had a dang stroke. I believe God was there with me that day because he had to be. But that was the ups and downs I felt the day I was supposed to die. There's a lot more I could have put in here, but I think you suffer through this enough. Yep, in my town, they call me, quote, hard to kill, end quote. I love the sassiness of Amy Lachelle. I'm sorry that you lost your best friend, Scott. But girl, I love your sass. Keep it up. All right, our fourth story is by Skip Gibson. He was a former law enforcement agent and an instructor, and he was 35 years old. And he writes, I had worked all night and had a part-time job as a tech support specialist for AOL, which I could do for my living room. At about 2 p.m., I decided to go to bed as I had to work that night and read some before getting tired and seriously getting some sleep. I was in good health but had something upsetting happening at work the previous night and thought that I had some heartburn. My wife and kids got home from school and I asked my wife to get me some antacid from the medicine cabinet, which I took. And instead of getting better, the heartburn got much worse and started to spread into my jaw and my left arm. I recognized that these were symptoms of a heart attack and my son called the local rescue. 
The pain quickly became incredible, and I felt like there was a huge weight standing on my chest, and someone was trying to pull my tongue out with huge metal pliers. The rescue arrived, and the EMT came in, and the pain was horrendous, to the point that I couldn't even speak or even cry, but tears filled my eyes from the terrible pain. They placed me on a gurney and tried to wheel me out of my bedroom, but my right arm was dangling, and they were crushing it going through my narrow halls, and it hurt so badly as well, but I couldn't speak or bring it to their attention. Everything over five feet away was blurry, and they put me in the back of the rescue and tried to get vital signs, and the pain was unbelievable. Then it happened, and I was like in a smallish room, which was a pearl color, and then a wise loving being was there and told me not to be afraid. All my pain was immediately gone and I felt great and and loved, so loved. I said or indicated to the being, which for lack of a better term, I'm going to call Jesus, quote, I guess this is it, huh? To which he responded, it may be. And I said, well, I guess now I'll be judged. To which he responded, oh yes, but the most difficult judge of all and it seemed I was immediately shown, almost like a movie my entire life. I wasn't a saint, but I was never malicious or harmed anyone intentionally and always tried to help others, and I still do. I saw the smallest details of my life, warts and all, the good things with the bad, and it was obvious to me that I wasn't a bad person, and the being of light said, quote, You are the most severe judge, as you know what you have done as nobody else and what your intentions were. End quote. I came to the obvious conclusion I wasn't a bad person, despite not being perfect. The being was very reassuring, and we exchanged some words, which I can't recall in detail, and I found myself going quickly down a long tube. I was at such peace, and it felt so good and free in every single way. There were no limits to my thoughts, and it was like sailing. I had the answers to all things, no fright or anything at all. As I reached the end of this tunnel, or tube, I could see at the end a beautiful, and descriptions fail me, so please just understand how I put this. I could see at the end a beautiful valley with green grass and thousands of flowers and a lake with a waterfall and a white city on a hill in the distance. As I got closer, people started yelling my name and welcoming me. Many I couldn't recognize, but others were past friends and family members. I was so glad to see them, and I wanted to join them so badly. It was paradise, and I felt like I was a part of all of them. Then I thought of those that I had left behind, my wife and two young children, and the responsibilities that I would have in their growing up. Yes, I wanted to join my friends and family in the beautiful valley. The beautiful being of light was somehow beside me and said something to the effect that it was my decision. But shouldn't I go back? I really didn't want to, but my responsibilities to my family, I felt, were so important as to my friends, as well as people I didn't know. I had barely decided, and I felt myself go backward, away from my past friends and family. I know I spoke more to the beautiful, loving being, but I don't recall what I was told. All of a sudden, I found myself in my body, in the back of the rescue, and the EMT was bending over me, scared and trying to put a nitroglycerin tablet in my mouth. I tried to tell him it goes under the tongue, but couldn't speak as we arrived at the hospital. 
I was wheeled into the emergency room and saw the doctors and nurses quickly hook me up to the equipment and this doctor said to me, we thought we had lost you as they cut off my shirt and hooked up more equipment. Someone else said to me, you are really lucky. We just had a class on how to use this new clot buster drug. Then things faded as I felt them work on me and I knew I was in pain and just certainly alive. My chest hurt and I had some broken ribs, but over the next three weeks in intensive care, I slowly recovered and was able to walk. The doctors visited me and told me that the heart attack did some damage to the back of my heart and I should slowly recover my strength. In six months, I was back to work and feeling myself again, knowing how close I had been to death, but I wasn't afraid any longer. When your time comes, there is nothing to fear. But one warning I remember from the being of light, and that is, life is the greatest gift God can bestow, and the one unforgivable thing is to take the life He created before its time. So I take that as suicide, and I don't want to because, to be quite honest with you guys, I have had a last few months kind of a rough time, and I've actually considered suicide myself. I hate even admitting that. But this story somehow tells me, at least in my heart, that I can't do that. Back to the story. He says, I knew when this happened, there was a remarkable experience, and I didn't want to forget it. As soon as I was in the intensive care unit, I wrote all of it down so I would never forget it, and so I could share this all with you. There is so much that I can't put into words, but this is all essentially true as it happened to me. There are so many things beyond us, mere humans and our language. This is just the best that I can do to share my experience. Well, thank you, Skip Gibson, for your story. It apparently was what I needed to read today because the last few nights haven't been so good. Ah, But I'm still here (laughs) and I'm doing better. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, story number five is by Gordy Musket. He says, I fell asleep after taking sleeping pills on top of pain pills and a few drinks. And I wasn't ignorant. I knew the possible consequences, but I was in a bad place in life and pushing things like this was a common theme for me. But on this night, I stopped breathing. I went to bed and immediately fell into a deep sleep. It didn't last long, though. Suddenly, I woke up gasping for air. I finally caught a breath after a handful of gasps and laid back down. I was so drowsy. Once again, I fell back into a deep, deep sleep. I found myself floating down a dark tunnel with walls that looked as though they were made of wet mud. There were ribs around the curvature of the tunnel, spaced evenly about every 10 feet or so. I felt weightless, and the moment felt timeless. I floated downward for what felt like a long, long time, but it also felt like only a second. My concept of time didn't apply, if I had any concept at all. I wanted to reach out and touch the wall of the tunnel. The wet mud looked inviting to touch. I wanted to feel the wet, smooth, cold mud on my skin, but I had no arms, no legs, and no body. I don't know what I was, but I wasn't made of flesh. And that's when I noticed a light at the bottom of the tunnel. 
it crashed into the darkness with harsh, jagged edges. The two, light and dark, didn't fade into one another like they do in our reality. Instead, they looked as though they were at war. The light cutting into the darkness and the dark swallowing the light. Soon, I could feel a warmth rising from the light. And there were silhouettes in the vague shapes of people standing to the side, covered in blinding light. I stopped floating downwards and hovered above the light. I became anxious. Suddenly it had hit me that I was dead or dying. Then I noticed a small ball of light break away from the source below me. It floated quickly up and behind me. As it grew closer to my right side, I could feel its warmth. I was no longer anxious. I was calmed by its presence. The ball of light hovered just behind my right shoulder and covered me in warm, radiant light. Then a voice spoke in my head. I recognized it as being my own voice, but it was not me speaking. It told me it was there to give me answers. And then before I could even think of the questions that I wanted to ask, it answered them. The answers were cryptic, but somehow I knew that they had bigger meaning. The one that stands out to me was the answer, quote, because you can, end quote. I asked the light why my life had been so hard, and why did I have to go through so many horrible things? Because you can, was my answer. And somehow in the moment, that made sense. And I'm not sure how many other questions I even asked, but it was over just as quickly as it began. Suddenly, I was seeing a million images in my mind, images of my life, images of the people's lives I had been a part of, images of past lives, and images of potential consequences based on a decision to stay or to go back. I experienced a million feelings at once. I felt the pain inflicted on me by others and the pain I inflicted on them. I saw how connected all of our actions are. I saw the small acts of kindness I gave grow into something life-changing for another, and vice versa. I saw how my acts of selfishness bit at the hearts of people close to me, and how one small act of selfish behavior becomes a lifelong scar for someone else. I saw every moment of my life and how I impacted, good or bad, everyone I'd ever been in contact with. I saw so many beautiful things but I also saw many truly horrible things. As good of a person as I thought I had been and tried hard to be, I still caused a huge amount of pain in this world. I saw past lives, two that were significant. Hmm. In one life, I committed suicide in a hotel room while a parade of people celebrated on the streets below. As soon as they began shooting their guns in the air and cheering, I pulled the trigger of the gun stuck in my mouth. The other was that of a whaler who died at sea. Although I saw the death, what was more important was what I saw. I saw a scene that happened shortly before my death. I was standing on a beach, hugging a young boy who was crying and didn't want to let me go. Another older boy was standing some feet to the side and he was angry at me. He felt betrayed. I motioned for him to come to me, but instead, he turned and walked away from me. The two boys, my sons, were also in my current life, but playing different roles. I saw my current sister become angry, almost to the point of hate, with me for dying. I saw my dog of six years suddenly die, her head in her food dish, because I had died.
that makes me sadder than almost the people. I saw my wife alone, unwilling to find another companion because I had died in our bed that night. This is when the voice said to me that I had a choice to make. Before I could consciously make that decision, I found myself being sucked straight up. The suction was so strong that I felt that I might rip apart and just disintegrate. I could see two small balls of light that grew bigger and bigger the closer I got. Soon they were so big and so close that I was terrified that I would crash into them. And as I was inches from slamming into them, I could see a familiar poster on my bedroom wall. Then slam! I hit my own eyes and body so hard that I flew straight up in bed and fell onto the floor. My wife startled awake as I struggled to take a breath. My body couldn't figure out how to breathe. I was terrified. But soon a breath came to me and I took in as much air as I could. We got up and made ready for the hospital. On the way there, I stopped breathing and passed out a number of times. My wife sped through every light on the short drive and pulled up to the emergency room doors. Before I knew it, I was being wheeled back to a room where they fed me oxygen and eventually forced me to swallow a significant amount of charcoal. A day in the hospital, a week of shitting black charcoal and a lot of therapy were my only consequences for acting so selfish. I didn't remember anything except slamming back into my body at first, but a few days later a fragmented memory came to me, then another and another. Over the course of a few years, I slowly pieced together what happened. And it's been a hard thing to understand, partly because I don't know if I can fully understand while I'm on this side of the border. I came back with no huge, meaningful, or life-changing epiphany. I came back with no powers to tell the future. I returned with no great insight on life after death. And I struggled to find meaning in what happened to me. But one thing did change for me significantly. Before this happened, I was not a spiritual person. For me, spirituality has always been different from religious belief. I saw no real significance in either of them. I didn't believe in God. I believe that when we died, we're just dead and that's it. Now, although I still, this part makes me sad for this person. Now, although I still don't believe in God, I am definitely a spiritual person. I believe in connection. I believe in oneness. I believe in the powers of selfishness and kindness, not good and evil. I feel more complete now that I am more spiritual and am mindful of how I act. I still fuck up regularly, I'm still an asshole, and I'm still selfish, but these are rarely ever done purposefully. Before I tried to be a good person because I didn't want to be a bad person. That also meant I denied the ways that I was bad or hurtful, and only accepted the ways that I was kind and loving. Now I accept that I am both and I strive to be better. So suppose I did come back with something significant. The world looks to me like a moldable object that we can always make better or worse. Nothing is without the ability to change. Peace. And that ends his story. So on the heels of that story, I'm going to add one thing of myself to these stories. And I feel that I must say this because I care about all of you that are listening. And I'm not preaching. In fact, I might even be running the risk of podcast suicide. But there is something that I want to say that might make all the difference to at least one person out there. I told a friend one time who asked me a question that I didn't want to answer because 
I thought I was risking offending her. She said that she felt very spiritual, but she didn't know why, and what was the difference between God and Jesus. She said that she believed in a higher power, but didn't know exactly what that was. And I told her that God is our creator, and he did this really big thing by coming back to the earth as a man. And he did this because there needed to be some sort of payment for our sins. And people used to give sacrifices on the altar to use as a payment for their bad actions, their bad deeds, their bad behavior. And I know that this sounds confusing because I'm not any expert, but I'm going to do the best that I can. So instead of killing lambs or giving some sort of blood sacrifice every week as penance for our shitty things that we keep doing, God decided that he was going to do this humongous, crazy-ass thing. It was when the world was full of corruption, people were creating false idols and worshiping all the wrong things, much like today, actually. And I'm not going to give you the complete history and story of the Holy Spirit coming down upon Mary, how a baby was born, etc. But I will say this, God came back as a man, and he knew what the outcome was going to be. He knew that he was going to be sacrificed on the cross, and that his blood literally would be pouring out of his body, and it was for all of us, for all of our sins. No need for laying goats, calves, or sheep on an altar. All we have to do to get into heaven is by accepting and believing that Jesus Christ is our Savior. We just believe that he died for our sins, is all. So all we have to do is believe. And I mean, he did this super amazing supernatural crazy thing and all we have to do is believe it we don't have to prove it we don't have to be perfect because obviously we cannot be and i definitely am the farthest from perfect i have a sailor's potty mouth as many of you that have listened to this from maybe episode one you can attest to and i hate it i have a hell of a temper which i absolutely hate but i haven't been able to control it since puberty without medication in fact with medication i still do a terrible job of controlling it but i'm trying and we don't have to be skilled in a particular certain way we just have to believe and the more we believe the more our heart changes and we just start changing from the inside out loving god and others is the ultimate task that we will want to perform once we start to believe because jesus wasn't just some spiritual individual during his time on earth he was both god's son and god himself he was god in human flesh yeah he was fully man but he was also fully god so all we have to do is believe and believing will make us want to be kinder gentler more forgiving more loving and more compassionate i remember one time a friend told me that one of my ex-boyfriends told her that I was the nicest person he had ever met with the worst temper of anyone he had ever met. So obviously, we're, we're, we're just sinful. We're not perfect and we're not going to be. And so don't expect to be perfect. But we just have to believe in God and that he did this really amazing thing by coming back as Jesus Christ. I'm hoping that this episode helps at least one person believe when, when maybe they were sitting on the fence or maybe they just didn't understand and had never really checked into it or thought about it on a deeper level. You know, I have to be honest, it saddens me a little to hear of other 
podcasts and hosts of podcasts that will say that they believe in ghosts, aliens, witchcraft, or other magical things, even in some sort of otherworldly special being. But they will say point blank that they do not believe in God. And if you don't believe in God, then you really don't believe in anybody named Jesus. Of course not. And that is certainly their right. They can believe in whatever that they want to believe in. But maybe they haven't thought about it in the right way. Maybe they never heard it explained in a way that made sense to them. Because what do all of these ghostly stories mean to the unbeliever? All of these near-death experiences. I mean, like the guy, the last guy, that just said he doesn't believe in God. Though he literally was in a situation that it was good and evil kind of fighting for him. And he felt warmth and love. And yet, he said, I don't believe in God. You know what? Gunter, that's, that's your right, but it makes me a little sad. I don't understand. It's okay. It's okay. I will still love you anyway. <laughs> Back to what do all of these ghostly stories mean then to the unbeliever? And I don't know if that an unbeliever just doesn't want to put a name or a face to him, but I'm telling you that that's the point. You must. And he may go by a different name depending on the culture, the language, or the religion, but it always comes down to the same story, the same belief, and the same outcome. The belief that our Creator, who I call God, others may know Him as Yahweh, Elohim, Jehovah, Adonai, Tetragrammaton, Alpha and Omega, Elroy, El, Elion, whatever His name is to believers, His purpose is the same. He came upon the earth as a man, to me as a Christian, and His name is Jesus. But he came to pay for our sins, for our continuous misdeeds, and his payment was his life. So if someone gives up their life for you, that's a really big freaking deal. No matter, no matter what your religion or your culture or your belief system is, or if you believe in nothing, if someone gives up their life for you, that's a big fucking deal, isn't it? As a human, we understand that that is the greatest thing anyone could ever do for another person is to give up their life for you and all we have to do is to accept it and believe it so before you say nope i'm not going to do that i'm not going to believe in this silly hocus pocus mythical story i'm simply content to just worship my worldly things because they make me happy then do this do a little research do a little digging listen to some of the stories of people that did not believe in God and experienced something extraordinary that changed their life. Because my friends, I care about you, all of you, because each and every one of you are someone's favorite person. Eternity, I'm sorry. Eternity is a very, very long time. And I plan on seeing my loved ones when I leave this earth. I've lost so many that I cannot wait to see them for an eternity. Take care, everyone. Be safe and believe. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please subscribe and share. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.